Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up piece, Another Week Ends, which is sort of our Christian cosmopolitan's guide to the contents of the interwebs with a grace-infused flair. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my usual co-hosts, Sarah Condon and David Zoll, to discuss Another Weekends. But first, I had the privilege at the conference in New York of sitting down and having a conversation with David, uh, my friend and colleague and the director of Mockingbird, and Derek Webb, uh, a musician who uh, has a long and celebrated and interesting career in the Christian music scene and beyond. I give you our conversation with Derek Webb. The democracy stuff, stuff. Like yeah, yeah. Stuff. But I really think I would love the only thing I thought as I've thought about doing it that I was like, how would I do it? Is um, uh, 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 Lenny Bruce. <laughs> Lenny Bruce is dead. Like I don't know how I'd do that one, and make yeah, that be... make that. I don't know what how, what what could I bring to that song? I'm do you sure. vote, dude? I I do sometimes. My my thing with my thing with voting is that if what I typically tell people, and this is certainly the way I, my ethic about voting is, if your conscience will allow you, then by all means vote. But if if you if you're voting defensively to say I like have like a moral issue with both candidates, but I want to vote for the the, less, the lesser of the two evils to block the like as a defensive vote, I'm what I invite people to do is like you are at liberty to not vote. Um, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like it's, it's more perilous to risk violating your conscience than to not vote. You so, would not recommend that in chess. In chess. A block is a good move in chess. In chess it is. Might be bad. As well, a, and as I've a, got other friends. I've got a, like, issue, yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of friends who are, like, for instance, who are, um, who tend towards third-party candidates, who tend towards independent candidates, and people think they're crazy. And they're like, well, you know, you're throwing your vote away, and it's so, and it's, and I'm like, you know what, like, when it comes to voting your conscience, like be a fool and vote your conscience. Like if there is, if there is an actual candidate who you feel like lines up with your, the way that you see the world, um, even, even beyond just how good it would be for a third party candidate to have a, to, to break the two party system, which we would probably never do, but to have like a real showing for a third party candidate, like Ron Paul almost had. And he really like, that would be such a good thing. Like we're so locked in a two party system just feeds on on a polar extremes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like one person, like as soon as I hear somebody say something, they immediately say something that's the total opposite and that becomes the platform. And it's like, it, it'd be good for us to have a third, a, an, odd, an odd number of candidates. But um, So I typically tell people, like if you want to vote third party and you're only, the, the, the only thing keeping you from doing it is thinking that you're just, you're being stupid and you're throwing your vote away. Like, Throw it away if, if you're if you're doing it on your if it means keeping in line with your conscience. Do you throw your vote away. So you're, the second last song you sung, I forget the title. Tell me the song title of the song. Mm. Save your own. Save your own Capitol Hill. Do you think politicians are really more corrupt 
than the average. I almost sometimes I think they're less corrupt hmm. because they've got they don't have the luxury of a private life. That's like right. you can screw up a tweet, like a dick pic, if you're Anthony Weiner, and delete it. You, I mean, I mean, you you can't, you can't. do that. If your average person can do that. Right. I mean, not that I've ever done. No, but you know I mean? like you know, what I mean? but I think almost yeah, I it's almost mean. like yeah. they become mirrors. They're so scrutinized. I, I think they almost like it's the sort of uh, like Game of Thrones shame, like shame, don't shame. Yeah, like yeah. so, in some sense, they, they they are almost like mirrors of ourselves. It's like yeah. where it's a, it's almost like a, a scapegoating thing where where we kind of put our secret shame on them. Sure. They're the crosses upon which we hang our sin to be justified. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree Jesus with that. Jesus for president. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. The only thing is I think that they're probably just better. I think they just have to bury it deeper. That's what somebody asked Trump. They were like, uh, is Ted Cruz the, uh, the, the uh, dirtiest politician you've ever seen? Trump was, oh, no, no, not the dirtiest. The dirtier ones are smart. They don't get caught. He's the most dishonest, but he's not smart. The smart ones get away with That's it. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I mean. Lying to Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I think, I, he, here's my thing, is I'm suspicious of anybody, like, like, I mean, this is like, it's a cliche, but like Mr. Smith does not get to Washington anymore. Like, I just do not believe that. Mm. Like, in order to get, in order to have a voice in a race for power, you have to just specifically in American politics, you just don't get there unless you have resources that can only be provided by people who are going to come calling at some point. Like they're all getting in all your pockets and there's kind of no way around that. Like, I mean, unless you're, I mean, unfortunately I've always said, unless you're independently wealthy, you could fund your own campaign. Yeah. Gosh, Unf- gosh, Derek. What? Unfortunately, yeah. the one character who has done that and is doing it smashingly right now is somebody who I think probably has no business running for office, but, but Bernie Sanders <laughs> has raised more money than any candidate. I mean, so maybe he is, well, the, maybe he is the populist in the sense of like, he's actually mm-hmm. raising do you see a parallel to that, like in the music industry, like where, you know, where people, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to give, I'm going to circumvent mm-hmm. like the sort of uh, the music industrial complex. Right. And go directly to the. Right. I think that um, the business as it is today, it, um, the head of the sales curve is, is an anomaly to get into. Like e- even the executives. There's no see. There used to be a decade ago, fifteen, twenty years ago, there was a dollar amount, and if you spent that dollar amount, you could put an artist, any artist, into the head of the sales curve. You could, and you could sell millions of records. Hmm. And it was just a series of things you had to do, and it was a dollar amount on it. Now I would kill if somebody would pay because I I could do like four karaoke songs. If there was a dollar <laughs> amount, I I'm really say, not like, joking though. Dude, the only thing I could be the best rock star. The only thing I'm missing, like you see what I'm wearing, I feel like I have the panache, I have some eccentricity. The only thing I'm missing is talent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like, well, but back I, in those yeah, days, that wasn't a problem. That's exactly right. That didn't used to matter. And Millie Vanilli is a terrible example because they're the scapegoats, and everybody does what they got caught doing. But what I'm saying is, like that, that used to be true. Talent was not required, and but now. The way the music business works, man, it's all democratic, and it's just the wild west out there. So, mm. like, you really wild wild west. It, well, see, a perfect <laughs> example. And nowadays, like, what, all you can really do is you give it your best shot, and then if the impossible happens and you do wind up 
the perfect storm of things happen for you. Um, and something like, like Taylor Swift, or there's a handful of artists you could name. There's only a few now. Adele. Adele. I mean, th- th- these are the anomalies. The monoculture. And, but you when you love it, the players, but, 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 <laughs> I love the game. No, is that you hate the players? But, 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 I like now, that song. Though. No, and well, the thing is, like, but when it happens, then you can throw all the money and all the things behind it. But you can't create the opportunity the way you used to be able to. People you, are more cynical about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, Clive Davis used to be able to say, "Oh, here's Britney Spears. Watch me go. Watch me go make her number one. Like we're gonna watch me make her into a giant global pop star." And then he would do it. And now there just is not a dollar amount. Like there, there is not that path anymore. It's like if if certain things out of your control happen, you can throw millions of dollars after it, and you can feed the fire, you can fan the flame, but you can't do it like you like you could. We are. We are like in a post-rock star culture now. What is like, your path? Like as a musician, mm-hmm. what, what's your path? Like when you think about like, okay, musically, like you said tonight that like I, I promise an album's coming out. So you're like, what <laughs> motivates that? Like in, in the way the music industry is today, like what, like what drives your kind of mm-hmm. desire to do that? And like, what would it look, what would success look like? For me at this point, and I've been this way for a long time. Um, I've said, I've said many times that like, if I sold a half million records next year, my career would be over. I'd be miserable. Like for me, the thing I've learned and I've had the, the luxury of having been in a band for 10 years before my solo career started that did pretty well. We sold, we didn't sell millions and millions of records, but we sold like in total, we sold million, a million records, but we didn't, we weren't huge, but we were big enough for me to get a sense of what it takes to get there and to stay there mm. and what you give up along the way to have that. And, and, and so when I, because what happens is you get into the platform building business and you get into the pa- the platform repair business and you tell yourself, you're going to get up there and you're going to say something important. You know, you're going to do that thing you got into it to do. You're going to get up there and you're going to say something and people are going to, it's going to be this crazy disruption. And you, you, you tell yourself that's what you're going to do. And that's the reason you have the platform, right? But then what happens is over time, um, once you, once you have, once you have, if it works, if, if you succeed at it, then what happens is all of a sudden there winds up being a lot of like people's jobs and a lot of lives that are tied up in that platform staying, right? Like, like that continuing to work. And all of a sudden, all your time goes into securing and building. And, and then you tell yourself like, but if it got a little higher, think of what I could do. Like, I'm going to get up on that thing and I'm going to, but it, like, I have so many friends who were successful they had they were they had they had like some real ambition to really change things and disrupt things and say important things and whatever and then they suddenly had a little success the platform started to grow and then they start to tell themselves that story of you know but I got to keep my platform secure because one day I'm going to get on I'm going to say some and they have these amazing you're saying, you're saying at some point you wake up and you're like I'm doing like Amway or Adidas. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you have these amazing. And I got the marketing, I got the fans, yeah. I got the thing. And someday you're like, I'm just managing. I forgot why I'm doing it. That's right. I'm just managing the. Yeah, yeah. Your the, bio is the truest thing about you. Like the plat. All of a sudden, you have this amazing platform that you will never ascend. The job of an artist, and my that, the the thing the way I've always talked about the artist job description is to look at the world and tell us what you see. Mm-hmm. Look at the world and describe it. That's that's an artist's job. Because it implies all the right things. Like you have a particular grid through which you're looking at the world. You have a particular perspective on that. That's what I want to hear. And it's taken me a couple of years to figure out how to describe the world as I see it at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. 
you know, after like a couple of really hard years, it's hard to figure out how to, I haven't been blocked. I just don't know how to describe the world as I look at it. Why not? Um, because I mean, the older you get and you, and the things you go through, it becomes harder and harder to, to, you don't want to be Joni Mitchell. You don't want to, you want to save some things back for yourself. You want to protect things that need protecting. You want to, so it gets tricky because I've always been like a lay it all out there kind of guy and I'm not a poet. I'm very didactic in the way that I write, but, but the way that great writers do it, like Dylan, he was revealing everything, but nobody knew it. Because it was so dense, the poetry of it was so dense mm. and like so layered, it was like inception. Like you couldn't possibly figure out what he was talking about. Mm. But he was telling you everything. It's all there. You just don't have the the, the key ring to figure out how to d- decode the whole thing. And so that's never really been my strong suit. It was taking me longer to figure out how to talk about the things that are important to me right now, the world as I see it, and do it in a way that's both healthy and protective. Healthy and protective. So it's like you know, it's like you're you're you know it, so. So the stakes get high and, and it just takes a while. But I'll tell you, like I'm terrified of the songs that I'm writing right now. Like the way that I always do it is I, I do not, and I, I always encourage my friends, like in the creative moments where it's, your, it's literally like those first moments where you're, it's just pen to paper, don't try to not be preoccupied with what are people going to think, what's the label going to think, what's the radio going to think, what are my fans going to think, what's everybody. Just get it down first. Like let that be a problem you have to deal with later. Mm. But get the songs written first. Don't pre-filter them. Like shitty, shitty first draft kind of. Uh, Anne Lamott said. I mean, a, a little bit. Like, because I just have friends who like have told me about like they'll play me some song that's on their record. And they're like, "Wow, man, this song started as this kind of song, and here's what I was going to say, and these, this was a line from it." And I was like, "I would, I wish I could hear that song. That sounds amazing." So, yeah, oh. but I knew that like there's no way the the label would have released this, the record with that song on it. And I knew there's no way I could get away with that, so I didn't write. You know, I, I had to change it all up. And I'm like. But why? Like, if not in art, where? Where can we take chances like that? You know, where where is that valued? And so that's, for me, I've always put, I, I push the pressure into the future of like, I'm, I'm going to push through the moment, push through my fear mm-hmm. of what's somebody going to think? What's the, what's the fallout going to be? What's the risk? What is the risk that I'm taking by writing this lyric? I push that into the future to get the lyric written. And then I'm like, what have I done? You know what I'm saying? Like, and then I have to deal with it. Because then I, once I've written the song, I'm like, well, I'm going to sing it. I'm going to record it. And I'm in trouble now. And I've gotten in trouble many times in my career as yeah. a result. But I'm, I'm – so, which is to say I'm terrified of the songs I'm writing. Oh, wow. Because I'm going to record them and I'm going to sing them and I, I'm, I'm fearful. What's this, what's this uh, style going to be? What's the palette? Um, here's all I can Polka. tell you. <laughs> yes. I, I mean it's something I've never done. And this is what I was going to tell you is like my only rule – and if you go back through all my records, this proves out, especially even with um, I Was Wrong, with the new record. Say what you will about it. And I, that is, I will never make a record like that again. I love that record. I don't regret it, but I would not make that record today, and I will never make a record like that again. Can we, can we talk about the elephant in the room right now? So now we're done, yes. So David's wife is pregnant again. So you look at his genes. Could he transition to mom genes in the next <laughs> three years? I'm not, they're not terrible. <laughs> but I mean, oh. no, in all seriousness, I mean, so... Like, so you had a, you had a, you had a rock. Scott, Scott's wearing a scoop neck as we speak. I I bought this. Just want to say that for David's disco deck. When I saw that cat t-shirt, causing me to stumble, I went to Forever Twenty One and bought this. They had, I didn't know they even had men's clothes. Uh huh. It's funny because do they? Wife, I'm not sure. <laughs> that, I'm not, they no, do, they do now. It's I mean, funny because men, my wife, men can put the clothes on that they sell there. No, I think you've done. It's an M. It's an M. It's an M. It's this is in the men's section. Okay. 
Yeah, my wife and I might open a store called Forever 39. It's all just like couches, yoga pants, and wine. <laughs> That's Forever, th- forever, forever 29, oh, yeah, rather. Forever 29. Great. But sure. it's 39 year olds, but Forever 29. Yeah. So like, you've had like a rough year personally. Well, yeah. But, like, but the music you did was not victorious Christian life, right? It was no, not. It was never. not. So I, I had this friend, right, who was uh, in campus ministry. And, you know, he would, his middle name was A. So like, you know, I don't know. Let's just say his, his name was um, Ford, Ford A. McKinley. I'm getting this because I listen to this podcast, this Jewish podcast, Unorthodox. And they said that like Merrick Garland, they're talking about Merrick Garland, the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. appointee. And like, how does a Jewish guy get named like Merrick Garland? They were all trying to think of their Gentile name. So one guy's like, well, what I would do is come up with. Like a, something first, your first name is something a Jew generally wouldn't buy. Economy car, like sh- shoddy economy car. And then a really outdoorsy place, you're not going to find many Jews. Um, so I would be Ford McKinley. <laughs> so let's, I'll make up my Ford A. McKinley. It's, okay, it's Ford Protestant, A. McKinley. So yep. just to Friend keep, of yours? Yeah, uh-huh. Ford A. McKinley. Campus ministry. But he would say, my name is Ford A. McKinley. And the A stands for adulterer. And everybody would go, <sighs> and then he'd go, because I've been unfaithful to my God. And everybody would go, whew! Oh, we thought you were talking about sex. Like, so, on, so on some level, like, you kind of, you write music that talks about your own dependence. Like, you, you don't write music that's sort of like, rah, rah, I'm a superstar, I'm believing more, I'm getting parking spaces onward and upward, you know, I'm yeah, praying yeah. for parking. But then, do people treat you differently now because you're in a posture where you actually have to yeah. ask for grace or it's implied that you need to. Whereas before, it's like, we like when you're saying about grace, we just don't like you to need it. <laughs> That's really well said. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I don't really know. And the, and maybe I'm going to find out pretty soon because like, I haven't put a record out in a couple of years. And I've been kind of you know, living underground running Noise Trade, which is the company I founded about eight years ago. And it just coincided with, you know, there were a handful of things all happening at once. And one of those things was I was like, after the I Was Wrong record, I was like, you know, I'm like at the 10-year mark, the 11-year mark in my career, in my career as a solo artist. And like Noise Trade, I felt was a better fit for me professionally at that point because I have so much more ambition for the careers of my friends and for the health of our of the independent music market than I do for my music career at that at that moment. So and our and it was there was just a uh, an opportunity. Our board was had asked me before what it would take for me to step in and play a, a leadership role in, in the company. And I was like, I've got my day job that I love, and I, I can't imagine ever having the time to you know learn how to, let alone run a company. But it was just that perfect moment where I was like, you know, I, sh- I could probably take a break. I could probably use a year or two off huh. um, and not have to go out and endure the exposure of being out in front of all these people and not knowing, you know, yeah. where my footing is. And and so I've taken a couple years off, and and I, and I, it's been amazing. I'm so I, it's it, great things happening for our little company, and and um, but I don't really know. But what I can tell you is, it is interesting that you know I've been singing songs for more than ten years that confess things worse than I've done in my life that as it turns out are not false advertising. And so I don't really know why that's a shock to anybody. <laughs> and, and like, so full disclosure, I, I've gone through some rough passages and yeah. like, uh, 
those songs were thank you they were incredibly comforting. well that's 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 um i mean reciprocating vulnerability for vulnerability is a is a generous thing and i appreciate it and so it's like for me i think people are kind of bummed out when it turns out that it wasn't false advertising like that wasn't a metaphor i was being serious <laughs> I, I really meant all that and i think you're right people are okay with you um s- saying it but not okay with you actually really needing it yeah do you still and, go to church no is it, like is no. that conscious like is it it's sort of like hey this is a sabbatical from uh yeah i mean i think that you go through seasons where it can be healthy um to deconstruct and reconstruct things and i think i'm just on the precipice of the reconstruction period right now but for me it's been a very good and very healthy thing to um especially like like the irony is that um you know like if like church the idea of church if it's being done right it should feel more like an aa meeting than an amway convention right yeah like and but that's not how most churches feel like even the guy in the front's like i'm a my name is so and so and i'm a total wreck and come with me and let's all go get you know let's all go you know get um healed together whatever that's not how it feels. That's not, that's not TV, which is fine. And for me, I have, the, uh, through the last year or two that I've had, the people who have really come up around me and the people who have really showed up and really, I mean, I've had, I've had an almost 100% friend turnover in the last 18 months. And the people who I have now um, are people who I found in bars and people who I found in, like people who, um, it's just funny how the friends you make when the first thing that people learn about you is the worst things are the best friends you can find. Mm. And that's not typically how friends are made. That's not typically how church community works. That's not typically how really any friendships work. I'm not trying to blame the church for that. I'm saying most friendships, you meet somebody, you have something in common, you know, something you have friends in common or you have a common interest, but there's, it's good things. It's based on good things. The people who you meet and the first things you learn about each other like in pe- people you met, you meet in like certain kinds of groups and certain kinds of are like when the when the first thing and maybe the only thing for a long time that somebody knows about you is the worst thing about you. It's a pretty amazing thing to then get to know those people, and then you're kind of delighted and surprised when you find out good things about them. <laughs> there's this, th- there's this thing because you know those people will never leave you. And, and I thought yeah. that about other people, and that didn't turn out to be true. And I'm not saying I made that easy, but I'm just saying, like I'm I'm very grateful for the people who I have who, you know, in the, my community of friends now, those people are just not congregated in churches. They're mostly congregated elsewhere. There's a thing called creative mornings. Like it's, um, I don't know if you ever, like it's a, they start, it started in New York where they would have once a month, like a kind of Ted talk kind of thing for creatives. So hmm. your name tags though, it'd be like Scott, you know, and then you'd have to also answer a question. Like, what would you do if you weren't afraid? So you'd be like, Scott, I'd, Start that coffee shop, or right. you know, Joanne. I I would talk to my estranged wife. So it's funny because uh, I I'll be. This is full disclosure because you've been incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. So I this is so insane, and this is this is testimony to the like. So I like I you know like I, I'm a I like my I saw my like uh, name tag and it said attendee and I was like wait I I think I'm like a speaker I think I'm a staff person I think about so I. <laughs> And I thought, like, gosh, I guess I'm not that significant. Like, so, but then I thought my wife has the attendee thing, and she's delightfully significant. So I was like, okay. So I thought, like, what would I want my name to be? So I was like, 
neurotic was the first thing I put on my name because <laughs> it's because right. I'm the because only a neurotic person would think this about your name tag. <laughs> so then I thought like it's just the Luther thing, pride about Jedi. Well, because I think I'm insightful about things, so I'm a neurotic Jedi. So then somebody said to me, neurotic Jedi. I'd love to know what that would be in the Star Wars universe. I said, well, I think every Jedi is like the balance of the Force. You know, I mean, this could, it was preoccupied with it. Yeah, if they had Purell, it would have been, you know, all the Jedis before they touched their lightsabers. <laughs> who touched who touched Yoda's lightsaber? Purell, I need. But yeah, I think like, that would, oh, yeah. but how great would it be if we actually, right. if we had to like disclose things like that right. on, yeah. on some level that, so religiously, okay, it's really interesting. People like today, sociologically talk about the, the nuns, right? The people that are non affiliated, but then there's another, oh shoot. Okay. Can I just ask one question and we'll bag it? Someone's waiting for me. Oh, just one more. Yeah. None or done. You just need to walk out. I can just, this is my last question. Here, hold on. I'll, I'll... So, then there's been some sociological work on the duns. And these are people that still would ascribe to faith and like God yeah. or Christ or things like yeah. that. But they're just like, I'm done with the church. I'm not, I could still say the Nicene Creed. You know, right, I could say, right, right, right. So like, are, are you kind of, you don't shake me as a nun. Like, you're not like, I'm not, but are you for a season in the dun? See, the thing about it for me is that. It's all part of that deconstructing, de- deconstructive and reconstructive kind of process for me is like, I'm such a, um, so I'm not, I'm the opposite of the typical artist personality. I'm the opposite. Most artists are like abstract and poetic. And Have you ever taken the Enneagram? Sure. I'm a one with a nine. Oh, wow. Four. I'm a one. I'm a full Four. one. Wow. That's yeah. great. Dude, yeah. that's a great. Well, and so I am like most of my artist friends are again, like abstract, poetic, you know, they can tell you how they feel, but not any detail. I am hyper detail, rational, analytical, hyper, I mean, hyper analytical. David's a two. So he'll meet your need if he needs. Well, I'm a one. And so, (laughs) um, or so I'm told, I don't know. I took the test. My friends hyper analyze it. But, um, and so for me, it's like the last time I put any real thought into the construction of my kind of theological grid, I don't know that I would allow myself Jesus without the church. I don't think I would allow myself that because I don't really see a version of Christianity that does allow for that because he himself said, like, we're diverse members of one body, not any one person. Like, I've never believed that you could just go up on the mountaintop and have the sunset and there's your, you just do church up there all by yourself. I don't think, I don't think that's like, I've never been able to say, I'm going to just cherry pick and make my own thing out of this. If, as I look at the whole council of of the Bible over time, it's like you either, you're kind of all in or you're not in. And so for me, like, I don't know that I could really do that. I don't know that I, at least in the last time that I thought real hard about that, I, there was not a version of it that would allow me Jesus without the church. And so is there a season where maybe I'm having to say no to both for a minute? Maybe. Um, and I think if I come back to it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have both. I don't think there's a version. I just don't. So it's like I have a very high view of scripture. I have a very high view of certain I have a very conservative theological ethic when I have it. And that, that is so it's a great answer. Articulate, authentic, and, and self-aware. That's just the only answer I have right now. Hey man, thanks for this is, I feel like it's like a, such an abrupt ending to our conversation, but the night goes on and, that's true. We have other things to do, yeah, right? We got a disco to get to. But um, thank you so much just for your, for playing and for your time and just for pleasure. Like, I feel like yeah, uh, I you, know you, you better you. than I do. Uh, it's a pleasure. No, no. Well, the I feel pleasure the same. is all mine. I feel the same. Thanks. Sometimes, man.
you find a song and you hear it one way and you miss it. You miss, you miss what's going on in there. And that's why great pop music is, I mean, like, great pop music writers, essentially what they're doing is they're just building great Trojan horses. And, uh, boys, I mean, like, this is one of those songs for me that in the, by one of my favorite songwriters, and when it came out probably in the 80s, it just, I, I sang it, I knew every word, and I knew, and I, but I didn't, I didn't know one word of it. And uh, I love this song. And so, let's see if you can recognize this one. Once again, on a Friday, recording with Sarah Condon in Texas and David Zoll in Virginia. Hey, guys. Sarah, how how is Houston? Like, there's, like, biblical floods there. Yeah. um, A a lot of things are underwater. A lot of of water in houses. Um, Cleanup has started in some places. You know, as with any natural disaster, it's hardest on the poor. So those are really the people we're worried about. Yeah. David, how are any natural disasters in Virginia or no things are? (laughs) No, no, it's, uh, um, comically beautiful here right now. Good. There is pollen here. Oh yeah. We've been dealing with that too. Yeah. That's rough. People people are popping claret and like tic tacs up here. So I feel like it's wow. I mean Prince I I was surprised at how emotionally like this morning I woke up really early at five thirty. I just I downloaded a bunch of Prince music and I, I listened to Purple Rain and I I, I I wept. I was sitting there like, I can't really, uh, yeah. I mean, that it's, it's this, you, sometimes sadly, you don't know how much someone means until there's, they're gone, uh, which is even John Kasich was talking about. And there's not a, like a whiter, like more Midwestern, and this is no dispersion, <laughs> but I'm saying it's not what you naturally picture this older guy set as, as a Prince fan, but he was like, just really broken up over the fact that he had never seen Prince live mm. as I have. Yeah, neither had I. It's um, apparently live. He was an absolute revelation though, you know, in keeping with his whole persona, it was fairly unpredictable. Uh, I, rem- I met a kid, I met, talk about it, like a super white kid when I was working as a youth minister who lived in Hartford and he was, he was, so obsessed with Prince that he learned how to play. He could play every single uh, instrument. Sort of, he learned each instrument only uh, according so that he could uh, he could reproduce Prince songs. And so he could play like incredible electric piano. He could play an amazing guitar, uh, incredibly funky bass. Yet he looked like you know um, very straight laced um, little preppy kid in uh, West Hartford. <laughs> 
but uh, it, it revealed something. Were you the little preppy kid, David? <laughs> <laughs> something, something was going on in this guy, and it made me very interested in wanting to get to know him better. Hmm. Yeah, I watched an interview yesterday with Prince. I mean, there were, it, it was not hard to find. Uh, it was just kind of watching cable news, and he said that at one point as a teenager, he opened the phone book and looked through the entire phone book, like the yellow, and couldn't find a single thing that he wanted to do that interested him. So he just like perfected his craft and, you know, became this really a virtuoso. I mean, like in, it's interesting too. Like you, you know, they were talking about how in the eighties, the early eighties with like Tipper Gore and somebody else, they had this parental explicit lyric kind of thing. And Prince was like one of the hits on, on their like, you know, depraved list. And so to hear president Obama yesterday talk, you know, like we lost national treasure. It's just amazing how, uh, you know, what do they say? Every, um, every sinner has a future. Every saint has a past. So it just, it puts everybody's stories like in relief. Hmm. He was the sort of guy that, uh, you know, a lot of, it's a little bit like with Michael Jackson. I, I can't help but feel that everyone's coming out of the woodwork and they love one record from the eighties. And he's was, producing enormous amounts of material in the last decade like you know releasing three albums at a time at target that no one would listen to and um so it's i always feel it's a little disingenuous because um what have you done for me lately kind of thing uh and yet he was it's like kind of like 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 when somebody has like kind of screwed the family and they come back to a banquet and you have to kind of eat with them and like you yeah. sort of stayed there at the farm and been really loyal as a worker. And then somebody kind of comes in and, and, celebra- and they, everybody celebrates them. Like, like they've been, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's a story like that for, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I don't know I where it is. But... It sounds familiar. I think Better Call Saul. Yep. Um, Which I have not I, watched, I, I by the way. I thought David's piece on Mockingbird was wonderful. I mean, I'm not somebody that has listened to a lot of Prince, but um, you sort of talked in a really personal way about how influential he's been and how and why you've appreciated him. It's a great piece. Uh, What I really love was towards the beginning, you said, um, but today, I think it was towards the end, but today I don't want a silver lining. I just want to listen to a sad song. And it was funny because I was watching my newsfeed yesterday and there were so many people that wrote, it was we, and I've never seen people write this about a celebrity. Well, I'm not going to be sad about this. I'm just going to be thankful. And I was like, You know, be sad. Like this is a this is a big deal for a lot of people. Like, be sad. So, yeah, I, I thought That's, it was a great you know, piece, David. Well, thank you. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't want to act like I was a super fan. I was always reserving Prince, to be honest with you, to like get really into one day. He was oh, one of these people yeah. that I knew. If I knew if you can't, you have to kind of go all in with his his music. Yeah. You know, you can't. There's so much there, and that's just the way I digest music. So he'd always been sort of this thing on the horizon, and I felt like a, a phase was coming on a couple years ago. I remember I told my wife, but um, yeah, the. Uh, it isn't interesting how like everything has got to have a silver lining and, you know, heroes never die. They just sort of become bigger or something. The Twitter feed is, is both filled with some really funny memes about uh, Prince because he, he photographed well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Some really amazing photographs of Prince through the ages, but there's also this uh, hero worship that, um, the same thing happened when Michael Jackson died. Though I, I've always heard that even you – know, I think Prince introduced someone at the Golden Globes, the Oscars a couple years ago, and you could see all of the celebrities, like these 
A-list celebrities go completely red, like and 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 stop speaking. He was the kind of he was not only the artist artist, he was the superstar till the end, and and kind of no one could touch him. Even when he appeared on New Girl, did you see that, Sarah? No, did you watch no, 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 I do, but I didn't see that. He was in two episodes of New Girl, and he was great. He was really good because remember, Prince was in a couple films. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Not just uh, Purple Rain, but Under the Cherry Moon, mm-hmm. um, which was not very good. But Purple Rain was kind of amazing. It, Purple Rain's like a a, a proto Tyler Perry film. Mm. That's that's with with incredible music because it's so melodramatic and so many crazy things happen in it, um, and and it shifts from like weird comedy to like gang banging to uh sort of this androgynous uh glam rocker on stage i mean he was definitely you look at him and michael jackson and one of the the really transgressive things about them is how much they were playing with um gender i know that's all anyone ever it's the only lens through which people can see anything these days but he was um he was certainly doing it. I mean, way, be- way before it was acceptable, especially in the black community. Well, sure. It's, inter- but he it's was- interesting, too. Your dad said something at the conference last weekend about we go to movies to release our inner child, this split off from ourself, you know, person that's full of wonder and probably through wounding and shaming gets repressed and sometimes it gets let out. And I think for many people, Prince was like one of those people. I mean, there's, I was reading like the review that Stephen Holm wrote in 1981 uh, when he first saw Prince in New York. He says, wearing black bikini briefs, fringed high heel boots and black thigh high stockings. He is sexual license incarnate. My wife says that about me sometimes, but not with the outfit. But, but Prince is such a charismatic performer that his stylized salaciousness doesn't offend. Yeah. With his sassy grace and precocious musicality, he is heir to the defiant rock and roll tradition of Elvis Presley, Mick Jagger, and Jimi Hendrix. And he looked like Little Richard, too. That's, uh, he did. That's funny. I, I remember I, reading some interview in the, mid, in the mid-90s with Claudia Schiffer, like the, the supermodel at that time. They're saying, like, if any celebrity, like, who would you, you know... Who would you want to get with? And she said she was like a like a pause, and she's like, "No question, be Prince." That's amazing. And like Prince is, you know, like he's like five five, and she's like six one. (laughs) She's like hands down, no question asked. (laughs) I still wish that Prince had said yes to uh, duetting with Michael Jackson for the bad uh, for the song "Bad," but that that will be one of the great lost treasures of um of uh, just of of our time. He also inspired. One of the best Dave Chappelle skits yes. where basically Charlie Murphy is like, you know, re, you know, it's like this, this, he's reminiscing on the eighties and crazy things they did. So, so we're in this club dancing and Prince invites us all back, you know, with the band and we play basketball with him. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah. don't you guys have uniforms? I don't know where you bought those shirts. It certainly wasn't in the men's department. And then like, Prince is <laughs> in the band, the revolution, they beat these guys so bad. And then after... He served us pancakes. <laughs> Just like, here, Charlie Murphy, here's your pancake. It was so great. It's an incredible skit. Well, it, you know, yeah, may he rest in peace.
lighter, uh, on a lighter note, I, I feel like the Babylonian Bee, we, like, they need to give us royalties or we them or something because they're becoming like a running uh, appearance in the podcast on our website. They, they are, and Sarah, you pointed us to something this week that you thought was hilarious. Yeah, and we have to start saying the Babylon Bee, and maybe they'll start giving us royalties. Cause oh, I that saying, Babylon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's this piece, Youth Pastor Forgets What His Hebrew Tattoo Means. Uh, and I'm just going to read a little bit, because it's just so, I mean, it's short. It's so good. So Seattle, Washington, local youth pastor Bryce Lepresti blew a perfect chance to give a reason for the hope within him Tuesday when his neighbor finally inquired what his tattoo means. Dude, thank you so much for asking. Lepresti reportedly replied, peering down at his forearm. It's Hebrew for, uh, it's the Hebrew word for. <laughs> so, then there's like his girlfriend says like how, how bad it was. And she's like, it was a divine appointment gone horribly wrong. But my favorite line of the whole thing is, so in a press release Wednesday, Lepresti commented on the squandered opportunity. It was a moment missional dreams are made of. There I stood about to go all incarnational and I just froze. Like, if that's not the best use of the word incarnational that I've read recently, like, I don't know what is, you know, like I tried to go all incarnational. Um, I love this piece. I mean, I loved it for this oddly personal reason. <laughs> My roommate at Ole Miss was the Japanese professor on campus and um, who I loved. And uh, she told me that the first day of class every year, she would go through the class because she had all these like kids, you know, who grew up in the South who were into Japanese, like this was their moment, they were finally getting to take it. And a lot of them had Japanese tattoos. So the first day of class, she would go through and tell them that what they thought said like love or strength actually said idiot. Um so I just thought this, <laughs> this is funny for so many different reasons. I, I had a I had a buddy that got a Hebrew tattoo once, and he didn't go to seminary, or maybe it hadn't at the time. And uh, I think it was Shalom or something. But I was like, "Dude, you know the vowel pointing's wrong, right?" He's like, "No, nah. yeah." I was like, "All right." I mean, no one will really know unless you go to Israel, but you know, it's wrong. <laughs> but, I mean that, and the. That's so funny. And I mean, I wonder if there's just uh, the, the tattoo parlors are filled with pranksters on this level. Yeah. Like, I, I could imagine them wanting to punk some of these people pretty bad. But the, I mean, the Babylon Bee, I, they nailed it again this week with the other, that other headline, uh, gridlock ensues as, as, as God, uh, tells two men to date, tell, to date the same girl. I think it's like. <laughs> And like having done the youth ministry thing and heard so many times, God used as sort of like a wingman. Right. Well, I had a buddy that like, called me. He's like, "Well, the, it's in college." He's like, "Well, the, lo- or, the Lord wait, doesn't." Not just from guys. Girls use it too as as a, usually a way oh, right, out. Right. It's the breakup. Know? Yeah, but that's what happened. <laughs> to my buddy. He's like, "Well, the Lord doesn't find me attractive." I was like, "What do you mean?" Well, Melissa broke up with me, and she said we started dating a few weeks because the Lord led her to me. So then she broke up with me. So my only conclusion is the Lord doesn't find me attractive anymore. <laughs> because, by the way, Sarah, I, we let something slip. Your roommate in college was the Japanese professor? Yeah. When I was, when I was 19 years old, my roommate in college was a 40-something Japanese woman. <clears throat> yeah, I, who I'm I, still I, friends I, with. I love her so much. But Another layer to the onion. Yeah. <laughs> I want to write. I want to write your biography. I partied hard at Ole Miss. So badly. 
<laughs> it was just it was just like a river of sake. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Plum wine mostly, if we're being honest. Yeah. But yeah. Wow, that is so yeah. cool. Her mom, my mom found her for me, which I was also totally okay with. Yeah, it was, yeah, I was living on the edge at Ole Miss. Yeah, I thought this was funny because I think like the hardest job ever is youth ministry, primarily because there seems to be this fixation for some people who are youth pastors that they have to look like the kids. And so like every six months, their look has to like completely change. You know, like when I was a kid in youth program, like all the youth, the, like the big, like charismatic youth pastors had like frosted tips in their hair. Like all the guys had like this weird, oddly, unnaturally blonde hair. Oh man, I I I confess to having once having frosted tips. Did you? It was very, David, you kind of still, was, you still have frosted we're tips, gonna, dude. It's, well, well, in a different way. <laughs> yeah, it's age now. Great. We're gonna need a yeah. picture of that, David. It was about. It was honestly it was about like a two month thing after a breakup, Aww. and I was really just. I went to some place in washington and said just just change me <laughs> just make me make me different i can't stand myself right now and i need some distraction and they like this guy somehow talked me into like going nuts on my eyebrows you know i've got quite uh i'm not lacking in the eyebrow department and um he 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 made it look i've never heard the end of it from some people that met me during that phase in fact i was being interviewed to be a youth minister at at where i was being interviewed uh, frosted tips were very much liability mm. and uh one of the questions i mean i could tell everyone known that i'd gone to a, various schools and they kind of expected something from me and like about three quarters of the way through the interview, someone just said, "Okay, I just gotta stop. What's with frosted tips?" <laughs> and I had to explain it. I mean, it was it was a road into vulnerability because uh, right. I talked about how I um, wanted to change my appearance be- in order to change my uh, innermost being. But um, <laughs> someone's got a picture of that somewhere. I can't. I've never been able to find uh, one. But please, I, any if anyone is listening to this and has that picture, please t- hashtag tweet it. You know, at Mockingbird NYC. Uh, please, please do this today. Please, we beg you. Well, I don't. Yeah. Well, it was my birthday this past week, and um, uh, I always get lots of sort of embarrassing photos sent to me because I, I, my birthday is on four twenty, oh. which means yeah. you know not only uh, Hitler's birthday, but everyone's you know smoking a bowl for you. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, it, I, I think I got a couple of ridiculous images from high school this year when I had really long sideburns, but no frosted tips. I'm hoping to suppress those as long as possible. Well, yes, I, I might, that is my prayer for you. Anyway, moving, moving on. This interesting piece was it Wall Street Journal about people yeah, are f- are wedding crashing virtually, like via social media. So people on the weekends, you know, it's been a hard week. Where everybody's working for the weekend. So like people are, you know, having their coffee and stuff and looking at strangers' weddings. And people are setting up unique hashtags to enable people to do it. Have you guys ever crashed a wedding? 
Can I just say, like, make, like, a really moralist statement Absolutely. right now? Remember, like, when people, I mean, maybe not within our memory, but when we idealize the past, like, remember when people were just excited to have sex with each other when they got married? Like, remember when that was, like, the thing when you got married? You're like, we can finally sleep together, and it's okay, and, like, we can move in together. And now we're just, like, finding ways to keep it interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It <laughs> oh is. It is, like, it's a strange. I saw a th- an article a couple a year and a half ago, the, the big trend was like brides, the bridal party, the bridesmaids, and the, and the bride mooning the camera. Like, to, oh, yeah, like the, this is like, a, yeah. How weird was that? Gotta keep it interesting. So, yeah, like literally people showing their rear ends, like in the wedding photographs. Like, it's. But, uh, Sarah, I, I think that we might have a virtual wedding crasher in our midst, and it's not. I was you a real wedding crasher. I've done it tons of times. I love crashing weddings. <laughs> I used to I play poker at this club in Philly called the Union League, and in the summers there were weddings there. And I like if I was play, if I had a rough hand or two and just needed to de-stress, I'd go crash a wedding. I mean, I've to- I've told people that I dated the bride in high school. I, oh my I, god! I, I, talk, I would talk about how moved the homily, moving the homily was, uh, how close I felt to the bride's mother, and this is why this is a little emotion for you. Oh, I make up story. Oh, I've danced with the bride. I love it. I love it. Like it's the. I think crashing weddings is like one of the greatest things in the world to do why because you catch people at such a high watermark or it's such it's this like strange intimacy that you thrust yourself into or is it the deception what is it all the above what, what how, do, how you, does you, every I, fairy tale I, end, at least in the west right with a wedding it, right and they ever. were and they lived happily ever after because oh, yeah. i think we are not infinitely imaginative like god is infinitely imaginative but we can the most imaginative of us, Prince, whoever it is, still has finitude as their horizon of what they can conceive. And it's just hard to mm-hmm. conceive of anything better because if we take the Bible seriously, right? I mean, history ends in a wedding feast. So mm-hmm. it does not a bang or whimper, but yeah. a wedding feast. And you look at John, right? In, in John 1, you have this picture, you know, of uh, like Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was God. But I think, you know, Jesus' first miracle in John is the wedding fee is 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 the is the water to wine at the wedding and i think it's almost like the parallel to genesis 2 like it's it's the second creation hmm. story in john hmm. but i heard uh, a talk this past week i forget who said it but they were talking about how every shakespeare play <laughs> ends with a wedding that was Sarah. me yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but that was great it's i true. thought that was so interesting it's so, well, it was mindy calling yeah, talking Cawley. about weddings yeah it's genius yeah and i i mean yeah it's it's beautiful i i read this and kept thinking about like because i love hashtags like i'm not hating on hashtags they're awesome and i totally follow them and i like to write them but um but the hashtag i always look at when i'm like stalking strangers right now is newborn baby because that's where i am in my life right i don't want to look at weddings i just want to see like new babies like so you know maybe it says something about us what we're looking at. when we got married lindy like stormed down the aisle like quick and she kissed me before the mouse i was like babe you gotta wait for that so it was really but so i love our wedding was can't you can't uh, blame her scott you're irresistible i am sexual licensed incarnate now i (laughs) <laughs> no, but I, I I have such a fond memory of that day. I mean, like it was wonderful, mm-hmm. and we spent like no money. Uh, we it, like it was you know uh, it, we weren't trying to be radically countercultural or anything. It was just like it just not, wasn't our style. But it was amazing, and and I, I think there is something like our lurking uh, 
you know, it's interesting, like in, in Genesis, Cain, after he's exiled, he builds a city, right? Because like the Ark of Creation, the garden's meant to be tended. So we go from a garden to a city. So even apart from the presence of God east of Eden, he still had to make a city. Like, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be a rough city with, that's animated uh, by depravity and longing in the worst sense, rather than, uh, than spirit-filled you know, gratitude for grace. But the same, same thing. I mean, I just think we cannot help, uh, like, something in, about weddings moves us. And it's, mm. it's a beautiful thing. And mm. I hope that we see Prince at the wedding supper of the land maybe maybe he'll be like the wedding singer nice which would be a beautiful thing <laughs> did you guys see if you haven't gotten a chance to click on that video that i put in the prince tribute of him um and michael jackson and uh, doing a tribute to james brown while with james brown there on stage right in the middle of the 80s it's it's amazing fantastic <laughs> and i and as i said it is like a vision to me of heaven because there's so much joy and uh you know I, 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 that would be, I don't know how heaven could surpass that, <laughs> but, um, we shall see. They could let people we? on the other side crash the party. Hey, Scott, before we go, um, thank you guys both for everything you did in New York. I think it was just, oh, it's a blast. A, we, we haven't, we haven't actually talked, uh, as a threesome, uh, since then, but, um, Sarah, I can't wait for everyone to hear your talk. And the, the, all the content should be available early next week. Uh, we're waiting on a couple of last little things, but um, the videos will be rolled out steadily. But um, does anyone have uh, – does anyone want to share their top memory of New York? May, may I do that? May I put you on the spot? Yes. I think it, looking back, it was pretty incredible yeah. how Derek, Derek Webb played that, uh, played that song. Yeah. Played that, played that Prince song, I Would Die For You. Because I hadn't really listened to the lyrics before. But, um. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I thought Scott- the whole, I, I thought the whole conference was amazing. It was so accessible. I mean, I've been going to Mockingbird now for probably five years. And, um, and this was the most accessible conference I've been to. And my husband, who's been going to theological conferences now for, oh gosh, 20 years, said, this is the best one I've been to because, they didn't create this unreality. Like they didn't basically, they didn't have a really high anthropology. So I'm not going home to face some reality that they acted like didn't exist. Like I'm going home and I'm, you know, facing my sin, facing the sin of my people, um, facing our need for redemption in the midst of it. But he said, I was so encouraged at the same time. Mm. Um, so I would, I would just say that actually that's, I think Josh is my husband's take on it is, is better than anything I could say. Hmm. Scott, I, I ha- it has to be for you, uh, the Episco Disco. Am I, well, am I wrong? It's, it, it is, <laughs> and it's not. Well, the mo- yes, that was a high point, uh, and it changed like my church. It changed every, people. This is like legendary now. It's already become a legend. Like it stuff usually has to have more shelf life than that. But it's like so surreal even thinking about it. But for me, the moment that at least most moving was I was interviewing your dad, the uh, you know the one and only PZ. As he was talking, I looked over at Ted Peters, who's one of our speakers, and his wife, and their eyes were closed, and they were leaning on each other. And Ugh. your dad was talking about just woundedness and being born in the world to be delivered from it in, in a sense of brokenheartedness. And I looked at these two, and they were so in love. 
And everything he was saying was so true. And they knew it, not just like intellectually, but they were feeling it like in, you know, the marrow of their bones. And so to see them hearing him, like they were the only two people in the room was, uh, it was unique. Wow. Yeah, it, was, it was wedding again. It's, you can't imagine anything better than something that points to nuptials. So. Mm. Gosh, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. I, I can announce that we do have the dates for the 10th anniversary, um, which is next year in New York. It's, we're going to do it a weekend later. It's going to be April the 27th, 28th, and 29th, 2017. April 27th, 28th, 29th. So mark your calendars, uh, you know, try to, to get out of any uh, obligations. Um, we're going to be working hard to get all the information out there much earlier than we normally do. But that's going to, that's the 10th anniversary bash, and there will be an encore. Uh, do not miss disco. it. Don't miss I just it. Don't, awesome. I don't think we can, we can get away with not doing mm-hmm. one given how, uh, talk about the heavenly banquet. That was, and it sounds like Mindy calling is going to be our keynote from what I hear. Yeah. We've got her, <laughs> Stephen Colbert, <laughs> her Colbert. And I think, um, Anne Lamott, it's just, it's, it's, yeah. Prince is doing the music. <laughs> it's going to be emceed by Anderson Cooper and Kathy Griffin. Uh, <laughs> oh, Please not. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Thanks for letting me it's hijack quite this. Right. And I will talk to you all next week, if not before then. Thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. As always, any of the content you heard in the podcast can be accessed at our website, mbird.com. And if you like what you heard, please stop by iTunes and give us a rating or a review. And... This podcast is done to celebrate uh, the story of the one who not only would but did die for us. So it's fitting to fade out with a tribute to an artist whose memory we will not soon forget. Have a great weekend.